for me somehow. Yeah, but, uh, I want to hear uh, today. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> there was something you said I was going to correct, but I've, I've become so senile that if I, if I don't say it immediately, if I'd said it immediately, I would have, no, I, everything you said was, was accurate. I was going to amend or say something funny about it, but it's, it's, it's passed on the night. I'd probably come back in the middle of my reading somebody's poem. Um, well, thank you uh, for having me here. I, I, I've been before. I remember doing a workshop in this very room, and I, it's memorable in part because there was a young woman named Diana Whitney within that group, and I was very taken by her work. And afterwards, I, I said, uh, it'll send me a little bit more. And, uh, and then uh, I commended her to uh, the uh, director of a small Presco Harbor Mountain down at White River Junction. And uh, he published the book, and it, it, it's, done, it's done quite well. So it was, uh, that was, uh, I felt like I actually had some power, which I don't as a rule. Uh, at any rate, uh, speaking of of power in this era of uh, loathsome, for the most part, politics. Uh, I wanted to begin, I wasn't going to do this right away, but there's a person sitting in this room who knows a little bit more about that than any of us. And she wrote a poem called Leaving. I'm referring to Ellen, of course. I want to read that because I like it so much and it seems so timely. Um, leaving. <coughs> Leaving the capital in the yellow cab, no sleek sedan this time, with driver uniformed, a helicopter's low tone turns me to see two white tops. I'll remember them always in tandem, the din, the whirl, ripped leaves, and landing. I hugged my speech file to my blouse, held my hair down, and watched him disembark with smart salute, the groomed grass bending down, dog dashing out. What airline, the cabbie asks. I find a 20, haul my black bag out of the trunk, and soon I'm looking out my oval window, glancing back. I once stood behind the door of the red room, and when the announcer known as the voice of God spoke, I switched on my lavalier and stepped onto the red carpet. The day before inauguration is dawning damp, boxes packed for the archives, empty risers on Pennsylvania Avenue, Tanned Texans in full-length furs walk the blocked-off street. I flash my blue pass, my six-sided pin. It is the last day I can enter. We will always let you in, the Secret Service guard lies, laughing. Hovering, huge, flown above the languid flags of the obelisk. Low toward the big white house. Helicopters zero in. Men crouch black on the flat roof. There goes the president. That has a certain resonance, uh, more now than ever, it seems to me. Uh, uh, that's a wonderful poem in and of itself, but it seems of, of my pleasure. Um, I'm going to read this poem called The Owl and I. Um, it, uh, I came within an ace of being born in the state of Alabama. Uh, I always think of the, it, if you believe the Sharpie, the, it was lately ravaged by a hurricane, but apparently <laughs> anything is possible if you think so. Uh, that has nothing to do with the poem itself. I, I was, uh, I was uh, almost raised there, but an incident happened. My dad was in the military, and it drove my mother north to central Pennsylvania, where I was born and lived till I was 17. And uh, the incident itself will be... Uh, 
obvious in the in the poem. <clears throat> the owl and I. Once the Jim Crack cross got burned on our lawn, my mother took off back north to have me. My father was stationed in Gadsden, Alabama, before the Second Great War, commander of so-called colored troops. And he'd invited a few of his men inside the house, it seems. A radical thing indeed, just then in the heart of Jim Crow Dixie. So my mother escaped giving birth down there, though I don't have any idea why I'd think of this, which near to her death she spoke of so many years after. Why now, on watching a barred owl glide to a hemlock going dark at sundown, everything else is well going dark around me here where I stand. Once, at midnight, she thought she'd heard a whoop of human anguish and wondered whether some soldier were being lynched outside. My father went for a look, but found nothing. My lifelong relations with my mother were vexed, I now suspect, in part because between us two stood a lot in common. Jews were being crammed into cattle cars just then, but for Dad and those troops, the evil in Europe lay several months ahead. Still, Reeler imagined that cry of mortal misery stuck with Mother. Though no signs of nearby violence turned up next morning, the company came en masse to mess. Shit on a shingle, as the GI said, <coughs> dried beef on toast. So life went on, at least for a while, more or less. It ought to bring comfort that I'm here where I am, aging but safe, my kin constantly swelling as sons and daughters produce their own sons and daughters. And winter so harsh this year, giving way at last to spring with snowdrops glinting, the freshets making their evanescent cascades through the woods. I recall how my mother loved the season. So why then this lonely sensation? It feels that I'm in some pitch black tunnel and won't get out again. That this, as the saying goes, is it. That all have at the end, of course there can't be anything to it, is the sorrowful eight-note anthem of that single owl, the sound just now having reached my vexed old head, though I'd be foolish to think that song was addressed to anyone human. There's a kind of a backstory to this book, more than any other book that I've, uh, I've written um, about the the, the, the first half, chronologically, they're not arranged that way necessarily, or not slavery slow, um, uh, uh, were composed before I had a heart attack in 2016. And I wasn't, um, I was training, as I always do, even in my advanced age, to do this 12-mile flatwater kayak race and feeling fit as a fiddle. So it wasn't a heart attack like you usually read about. I, I, it was just like a little mosquito bite up here. And I didn't have any shortness of breath or pain or anything beyond that or late headedness. And I was aware of this remote camp up uh, on the New Brunswick border in Maine. <clears throat> and my wife, who long ago uh, has, has for a long time kept me from wandering into traffic, uh, said, you know, look at your family history. It's in a bad place. Let's go have it looked at at a little clinic. Because my dad died at 54 and his at 49 and his at 51. So. I went down and they said, well, you're having a heart attack. I said, no, that's, that happens to other people. I said, no, it's not me. It doesn't, you know, look at all the symptoms. Said, oh, the blood test tells me. So down to Bangor I got. I got a stent. Things have been fine ever since. But um, Samuel Johnson, the great critic, once said the prospect of hanging concentrates the mind wonderfully. And uh, that I was that close to death. I didn't know it at all. I felt fine. 
I feel better now um, than I did before I knew there was something wrong with me. You know, my right coronary artery was 100% occluded. And uh, at any rate, uh, when I realized that I was that close, uh, it was interesting. It was a dress, de dress rehearsal for death, and it wasn't scary. I, well, I won't get into that part of it. But at any rate, uh, it didn't, the, the title was here. The, uh, the here-ness of my existence became more acutely important to me. Uh, uh, and uh, so the poems leading up to that, I found in trying to put the book together, had a curiously prescient quality in the sense that they celebrated the here-ness of my existence. Uh, and then they celebrated it even more thereafter. But this is the first poem, it's called Here at Summer's End. Uh, it serves as a kind of prologue of the book. <clears throat> Here at Summer's End. The birds have largely quieted me to stress us. And like neglected mail, the garden's lettuce went yellow weeks back and simply dissolved. But we want to pause before we focus on loss and a season still teeming with vegetation. No matter the month, our sense of wonder remains, unless we will it to leave. Even now, the mercury flirts with 85, so it's wondrous, say, how starlings decide to converse, convene for migration. We can watch their flocks in the roadbeds. It's a marvel as well, whatever the force is that already started to blanch the legs of the snowshoe hares. Our longing is always for now to endure, though since the dawn of thinking, many a thinker has found death an engine of beauty. Truth is, however, one's world will never go dead. Those heads of lettuce are fused with humus below, and after those starlings wing off the juncos, juncos and titmice will show, and the ghostly hairs of winter won't be ghosts at all, but creatures with dark flesh packed onto bone under ivory hides. Coyotes will hunt them to keep alive through the ineluctable, I almost said awful, chill. And even then, the ice beads on softwood boughs may look, if we want, like permitted fruit. As the season nears or lingers or ends, an amplitude can tell us we still are subject to spells. We're here, after all. Let's chant it throughout the year, like so much bird song. We're here, we're here, we're here. We're here. As long as we're talking about birds, one of my favorite winter birds are the little pine siskins that are just arriving now in my neck of the woods at any rate. This is called I Keep Going at 20 Below. It's too cold for me to stay out long at my age, so I track the half mile road below our shed. It's earth deep hidden beneath the white. Far east, Black Mountain shows up starkly edged on a sky full of crystals. My boots on frigid ground are cheeping loudly enough that with these bad ears I can't right off discern another sound. Pine siskins by the score. The ammer from every evergreen in sight. I used to plow on snowshoes from powder hour on hour. It shames me to say that the notion scares me now. Still, it's hard to keep with wistfulness when air keeps glittering so and creatures no bigger than thumbs keep at their sustenance, dauntless. Each bird tears at bow tips, feeding and tweeting. I focus on one that worries the sparkling tip of a spruce comb, eats, then darts to another. 
beyond the bird, beyond the conifers in which it sat, beyond the outlying mountain. Well, what passes even beyond bright air? And who's to sense it? Not I. It's bird song that prompts such opening phrases. Beyond all this, let time complete my sentence. I am uh, uh, my son was the director of Planned Parenthood in Northern New England for many years, and so um, I think perhaps to make up for his father's profligacy in siring five children, uh, one of whom is uh, now about 42 years old, she's the counselor at Lake Champlain College or Champlain College in Burlington. This is called Spilled Milk, Apology to a Daughter Almost 40 Years Late. The train lumbered out of Toronto Station. Together, we headed for subarctic lakes to visit your brother at camp, your older and only sibling then. I dreamed of northern air as our coach careened past clinkers, barrels, filthy railway sheds, ugly as you were lovely. I ordered a spread of lunchtime stuff with for me some coffee, a glass of milk for you. A dozen miles would pass before you took a drink. You had a habit, almost willful it seemed, of spilling whatever you drank and must have been afraid, damn it, to reach for your glass while the dining car swayed and quivered. As for me, distracted, I was fixed on the winking waters we'd find upstream from the mess of Milky River at Trackside. In time, we escaped those outskirts into open prairie space, and you spilled the glass, of course. I pray at least I said nothing out loud, but I have no doubt you could read my miserable thoughts. And now, if I go to hell, and sometimes I think I will if justice prevails, precisely for things I've thought, my Hadean vision may be of your shame-ridden six-year-old face so riven by worry, which it should have been my fatherly duty to soothe restoring what had been its beauty. <laughs> Many years, I, 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 my family's uh, had a long, multi-generational relation to that part of Maine up on the New Brunswick border I just mentioned. And the uh, year I got out of college, I was up there, I was working, uh, uh, I had a job up there in the woods. And uh, it was a weekend, and I was uh, just out fishing by myself in a canoe, and I looked across the lake, and I saw an extraordinary sudden conf conflagration into a monumental forest fire on what passes for a mountain up there, 800 feet. And uh, we don't have that kind of fire in the east much anymore, because uh, perhaps because we've been raking. Remember that comment? <laughs> Oh, Jesus, like you can't make it up, I tell you. But it's partly because we have much better surveillance uh, and better firefighting uh, systems as well. But uh, fires in those days, if they if they uh, kindled in the in the warm months and the dry months, would tended to burn all right up until snow came. I mean, they would you know they'd be controlled and then they go in the in the in the dust and the dolf in the forest dust in the forest floor and then they'd come up again and. And, and start up another little fire. And 
I knew an old man up there, a wonderful old man named George McCarthy. He was quite a good folk poet as well, and a wonderful raconteur. He'd be 130 if he were alive today. But he said that during the Depression that he kept one of those fires going all winter long, all, all summer long because he, he needed the work. And he said all you needed was a little jug of coal oil, you know, <laughs> and uh, you could start the fire up and then you could go put it out and start it up somewhere else. He said he had work all summer long, but that's neither here nor there. This remembers uh, thing, that particular fire, that was the biggest one I've ever seen. It's called Fire and Jewel. 80-foot hemlock, spruce, fir, pine. They kept lifting off their stumps like so many rockets, smoke trails and all. And I beheld the fire cross lake from where I drifted. I'd been plumbing the water for fish when my eyes were lifted. Fifty years later, I still recall my thoughts and how I felt that to think them was more than odd. I was glad I had faculties to behold the hill's astonishing orange heat as it flared to white with each explosion. Then the whole of the conflagration, bending toward earth, a horizontal wall, a monolith that somehow tore downhill in a sudden fury of wind. It was gorgeous. Several hours would go by till I learned Earl Bo Bailey was forced to fly as quickly as he could on his dozer down from the ridge right into Farm Cove. He just had to take the loss. It was that or burn. Donald Chambers, wheeling an axe in his turn with a makeshift crew, collapsed from labor and heat. Paul, the storekeeper, dragged him away. I moved on, sadly, just a few more years. He and Earl and Paul, good, honest men. I can't account for dreams like the one last night where I watched that fire again. In what seemed again pure quiet, serene, the same jetliner as years ago crossed high. The same scent, rose, torch needles, caustic smoke. The same evil roar came on as I rocked in the same canoe, the waves still slapping its hull. In an hour, five decades back, the length of that ridgeline turned the color of onyx. The latest of my wife's birthdays will soon be upon us. Is that why the dream passed so smoothly into the next one? I saw precisely a beautiful onyx stone hung on the breast from a slip of chain. I'd never dreamt such a woman as that hillside black and wouldn't meet her for years. Today I drove to a jewelry shop as if still dreaming. 300 miles to the west of that little mountain I bought the necklace and felt some fire in my being. A mild version of one that kindled in that old autumn and has for a long time underground kept burning. I always like to say uh, <laughs> I'm actually lots of fun in real life. Um, I'll read a I'll read a, a, a poem which may show that side of it. Uh, uh, a, a, a kind of uh, melancholy insouciance has served me well for years and years. All Hallows Eve. I hollow my body out before bed. Contacts partial denture, hearing aids, blurry-eyed, gap-toothed, aching and hard of hearing. Again, I thank some unnameable something for what I have. However dim in my sight it may be, the water in our pond downhill still reaps the burnish of the rough-edged moon that winks through the same old window tree. Remarkably like a pack of dogs between the ridges that make a frame for our same old house, the owls yammer. 
Downstairs are three real dogs, Snuff and Twitch and Dream. One child's out west, and how I pray she doesn't love it. I love her and the other five, uh, the other f four who live nearby. No doubt their children trick or treat. At last, before I lay me down, I attempt some reassembly. Two wrist braces for carpal tunnel, collar pillow, CPAP mask, <laughs> lest tonight be the one when I breathe my last. Like a jack-o'-lantern, that ghostly creature grins ear to ear in my dresser mirror. I'll read uh, three newer poems. You know, it's, uh, I won't, this whole issue of uh, political poetry, I, you know, I've always uh, felt that poetry was not necessarily the best place for politics, you know. Street activism was, and letters to the editor in a more <coughs> mild way. Poetry didn't seem the right vehicle, not because um, it was just lousy subject matter, but that speaking only for myself. And when I write a poem, I don't really want to know where I'm going. I just want to start writing and see what happens. And I already know what I think about this or that political <laughs> issue. So I, you know, if I try and write a, a full frontal assault, as it were, it's just leaden for me. It never, it never takes off. Uh, and yet, and my friend Fleetham Brown, with whom I wrote that book, and I, I really commend that book, at least for her contribution to it. She's just a wonderful poet and a wonderful woman and a wonderful essayist as well. Um, we, we were talking about this. If you cannot, in this particular atmosphere, not write about poetry, given what I think is just a really scary time in our in our history. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't really take it on. I, I, this, the first poem I, I, I can read actually was generated by that conversation with her. Um, and uh, it's called Worries. <coughs> I have a very dear friend whose anxieties merge big and small, our political life, needless to say, but her plumbing too, or the dicey state of the shop she fears will not survive for lack of custom in her tidy Midwest town. I really recently had the nerve to chide this friend for her copious worries despite my copious own. For example, this morning I drove through a nasty blend of rain and snow to the village where my stomach churned. I spotted our local roofer up on a scaffold against a house. It was way too risky. And yet the world wasn't ending and isn't. Not every last thing's awful or new. We've always had monsters, say, like the one from Cleveland who lately posted videos of himself on YouTube killing some random old man. But since human beings drew breath, there have been evil and woe. What's so patently different nowadays is that nothing is hidden off-limits, not even the rave of morons who voice their opinions online, like the ones insisting that Mr. Obama's a Kenyan, his family all Muslims. Our screen world plops the village idiot down at the very same keyboard as the modern-day Aristotle. Viewers can choose the claim that turns them on. When a newer presence spoke of a terrorist horror in Sweden, for instance, its non-existence seemed to his backers not important. My friend, she frets too much. But for whatever it's worth, I understand. I didn't see that roofer today when I passed. What happened to him? I'd come to pick up the paper, which of course was filled, well, I'll spare you platitude. I suppose 
somehow the shopkeepers, roofers, and plumbers will endure while other matters understood or vague are after to lead us into disaster. As for me, I'm chiefly worried, despite my preachments, that these days there aren't enough like my friend who get it. But what is it? Dear reader, let's just be persistent. Since this stuff will break your fucking heart if you let it. In a kindred vein, 2019, this is called. Some are apt to swoon over nature, loving what they call harmony. But Tennyson got it right on whoever trusted God with love indeed and love creation's final law, saying nature, red in tooth and claw, with a raven shrieked against his creed. The gulls that once patrolled the Bay of Naples, for instance, long since shifted attention toward the city's landfill, where pigeons, slurred as flying rats, seek detritus like vegetable remnants, fish bones, fruit stones, clots of sauce, what have you. They're like gulls at that. At least like gulls in ages past. Now, in search of greater substance, the seabirds have largely turned from refuse and gathered together in teams to maul those pigeons. Not that gulls have teeth and not that we can rightly refer to their blood-stained webby feet as claws, but you catch my meaning. The plunderers smash their quarry to death and, like so many lions or jackals, devour each carcass. Is that what you mean by harmony? Our nation is governed by a knave and fool. Unnaturally, you say? What's new? The raptor gorges on its prey. One more. Those two obviously are not in here. I'll go back to that for briefly after. This one's called Photographs, 1949, written in, in couplets. In one, they pose, both grinning straight at the Kodak. The backyard elm not yet blighted to death at their backs. It's years since either parent was alive. How did it happen? I'm suddenly 75. We live our lives, Psalm 90 says, as a tale that is told. From where I stand, that's all too real. What startles me is the fact that the tale's so short. An instant, it seems, to this moment from back at its start. With what I've known, you'd think there'd be chapter on chapter. Five children, all those grandsons, those granddaughters. And indeed, I could go on about each one. But on and on feels no longer what it's been. My friends, of course, are more or less my age. We tend to think this way. It's near cliché. I have another photograph on my dresser. My father alone in that one. He stands by water that sluggishly slides by our cabin in Sumnitown. I don't know how to explain why I can't be found in the shot. After all, that bucket at his feet is full of sunfish I've plucked from that very creek. Or is it? Like anyone else, I tell myself stories. Maybe my claim's no more than imaginary. Which makes it, at least for me, not a bit less true. The fish are green and orange. Their lips are blue. I feel the sun as it caroms off treamside boulders. I can whiff the swamp nearby where algae molder. Who dwells in our old house these days? Search me. What room was mine? Who recall, recalls the ghost elm tree? 
The grass in the uphill meadow has gone brown as ever. Not one pumpkin seed in that pail still gasps or quivers. Who visits the cabin? Who hooks little fish in the water? My father stands there beaming beside my treasures. I shouldn't be, and yet somehow I'm stunned. Even the fish, though dead in the photo, are young. Um, two more. Uh, maybe three, if you bear with me. You know, uh, about six months before this incident that I mentioned, I, I had similar symptoms. I went to the little community hospital, which ever since my wife and I have come to refer to as Feet First Hospital. Um, and I was told that I was perfectly fine. Now, I may, may well have been at that time, I don't know. But uh, they wanted to do the blood test. They wanted to do it uh, several hours apart, so I had to spend the night, and I was, I was bunked with a, a man even older than I, uh, who'd been there quite a while, it seems. And uh, um, I'm gonna read you a poem about that experience called Cavaliers. From up here, the valley looks dazed with spring, and whatever I see seems a gift. Meanwhile, so help me, I wonder why I've never known a thing about cribbage. Not that it mattered. But back in the ward, my wraith of a roommate, 92 years old, had set up a plant game to play with his daughter, who told him they could both keep at it until baseball came on TV. I gave a huff of relief, not too loud, I hope, well pleased to know a change was coming from all those fatuous game shows. The volume turned to headache pitch. The old man's droop-lobed ears even weaker, I guess, than mine. I lay there fettered, oxygen hose, monitor, saline, IV. I'd had some chest pains that morning. Three drawings of blood all hours apart were apparently needed to prove I'd suffered no event. And so, worse luck, I was going to be stuck for a night with this poor old guy. The order kept saying, be patient, though he'd been in that room for over a month. So the two of us watched the Red Sox, who kept getting by on breaks, passed balls, bloops, and walks, and squeaked a victory out in the ninth. We whooped until he coughed so hard I rang my buzzer. A nurse came in and frowned and pinned him. He choked down a potion that killed the hack. He fell asleep, but all night... He'd jerk awake and shout, Is anybody out there? How long I mused, can a person be patient? I couldn't say I'd be gone early the following morning, my diagnosis, at least for now, mere heartburn. So now I've scrabbled up a hands and knees ridge to rejoice in a seemingly healthy heart. The world, as I say, looks suffused with grace. There's the scent of melting snow, muddy soil, wet duff, gray frogs are clucking in vernal pools. The freshets jingle downhill, woodpeckers rattle the air, new growth lights up the tips of boughs, the sky is far more vivid than what we settle for naming sky blue. So why should I think about cribbage? No matter, before I set out, I had to look it up researching old style in a reference book. As I read, I heard the clanks of gurneys, alarm bells that spoke of souls who were trying to rise from beds that they were meant to stay in. I can hear the clamor now, even these miles and hours away. Cribbage, it seems, was invented by John Suckling, near forgotten 17th century writer and peer, said to be carefree and witty. Features of poets 
called the Cavaliers. This one is called the Solace Stone, 1981. I'd lately known a real grief, my young brother, gone. So I set out alone. <laughs> I was, uh, George is, her, George is uh, my most faithful attender and former host of uh, Friday Night Jazz on, in its glory days on VPR, I, I must say. That. So I, I told him when I saw him, having driven all this way just to hear me, I'm, I'm gonna have to change things up, but it's too late. He's gonna have to hear not only the poems, but some of my jokes. <laughs> One of which is really worth saying because it, it uh, my uh, my old late friend Bill Matthews, the poet for whom our room is named here, uh, once said that my, my poetry could be synopsized in a line from the Teddy Bear's Picnic. If you go down to the woods today, you're in for a big surprise. <laughs> uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I mentioned that um, I was at the Vermont College of Fine Arts recently giving a reading, and I, I mentioned that afterwards to somebody that led Bill's witty comment, and uh, he said, you know, it is a kind of a scary, a scary uh, song, you know, they, they never tell you what, what the bears are eating. <laughs> I'd never thought of that before, that's true enough. Anyway. Uh, all that aside, solace, stone. I'd lately known a real grief, my young brother gone. So I set out alone, deep in Bro's Gore, where I'd never been until that morning, a headstone leaned. It was quiet. There was never such quiet. Who can recall that marker but me? Who is there even to know about it? Doubtless someone. Hunters must see the canted slab now and then, there since 1841. It only bore one name, John Goodridge, maybe wife and childless. Water and sun had worn its shoulders smooth. Home, late afternoon near evening, I moved from woodpile to shed and back, less, less as if I were working than dreaming. Scents rose in that autumn dusk and settled, odors of wood and rain. I settled, too, in the wheelbarrow's bed like a shard of log or some mud or a stone that might passively ride along. Four years gone by since I bore witness to that marker, the world around me turned mute. I'd never known so entire a silence. I wouldn't forget it, not ever. I would never not hear that stillness again. Our little family was set for winter. We'd soon be soothed by the iron stove's hum. I turned from our surfeit of firewood and felt at once that a gentle something from above the trees that loomed by the woodshed and down through leaf and needle were falling into my bone and my flesh. I thought back on that morning, laden with silence, as if I could move beyond joy or sadness, stone quiet myself, and this could mean solace. Finally, um, <laughs> I'll read the, this poem. Um, my, my youngest daughter. I, when I was appointed the Poet Laureate, I, my youngest daughter, who is living in California, but is moving east next year to my great delight, she is the funniest person I know. I'm no lie about it. She's the funniest person, the quickest I know, at least the quickest wit. 
And when I, I, we were off on a family trip, just going out the door when the then director of the Vermont Arts Council, Alex Aldrich, called up. I figured he wanted some money or something like that. Alex, I'm sorry. I've, I'm on my way out the door. I don't really have much time to talk. And he said, well, you have time to tell me whether you'd be willing to be the Poet Laureate in Vermont. <laughs> so I, I put the, the phone to my chest and I said, I'm the Poet Laureate of Vermont. And my daughter said, it's pronounced low rate. Because <laughs> I didn't have 10 seconds to gloat. But at any rate, the reason I mentioned that is that she had another comment. Um, when I was 60, I, you know, back in the day, I used to do some, a real runner wouldn't call it running, but I would run to kind of, kind of stay in shape through the woods and so on. And then my knees suddenly wouldn't take it anymore. <clears throat> so I took up, as I say, this, uh, this uh, what she referred to as a fit of geezer madness. I took up this sport of competitive flatwater kayaking, uh, which is great for me because I live virtually on the Connecticut River and there's no impact. Uh, on any of my joints, and I really like it. And you never know what you're going to see. It's a quiet way of traveling, and I see a lot of wildlife, uh, both human and otherwise. And uh, so, the, uh, but on those, uh, there's many occasions in which I do something more sane, which is to go down with my wife in an open canoe and just paddle leisurely and see what we can see. And this is a poem that remembers one such trip. <coughs> it's called My Wife's Back. All naked but for a strap it traps my gaze as we paddle, the dear familiar nubs of spine bone punctuating that sun-warmed swath, the slender muscles that trouble the same sweet surface. We've watched and smiled as green harness flushed and hopped ahead at every bend, and we've looked up at a red tail tracing open script on a sky so clear and deep we might believe it's autumn, no matter it's August still. Another fall will be on us before we know it. Of course, we adore that commotion of color, but it seems to come again as soon as it's gone away. They all do now. We're neither young anymore to put matters plainly. My love for you over 40 years extends in all directions, but just now to your back as we drift and paddle down the tranquil Connecticut River. We've seen a mink scratch fleas on a mudflat. We've seen an osprey start to die, but seeing us think better of it. Two Phoebes wagged on an ash limb. Your torso is long, I can't see your legs, but they're longer, I know. Phoebe, Osprey, Heron, Hawk, marvels under Black Mountain, but I'm fixed on your back, indifferent to other wonders. The bright minnows that flared in the shallows, the gleam off that poor mink's coat, even the fleas in its fur, the various birds, the lust of creatures just to survive. But I watch your back, never. Have I wish more not to die. Thank you. <laughs>